dubbed the most loyal fans. Uh, but um, let's just pause and ask the Lord's blessing on, on the message this morning. Father, we pause this morning and just want to thank you for how you go ahead of us in so many ways. Uh, even this morning, um, I prepared a message that uh, as these songs were sung uh, by these amazing testimony from these ladies, that uh, the message that they sing is is found in what I'll talk about this morning, and uh, I didn't know them, I didn't know the songs they would sing, and it's apparent that, uh, that you've gone ahead of us this morning to bring a message, uh, Lord, that I pray as we leave here today that we would be changed, that we'll grow, that we'll have taken a step closer to you, and particularly this morning, Lord, that we'd understand your grace in a deeper way. Uh, we'd understand your grace that as we as we hold it in our right hands each day as we walk with you, that your grace is transforming us daily. And we pray to that end uh, today uh, in this message. So thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I, when, when I came in, they said this would be difficult to hold on to. You're right. So usually I'm around a fire. I don't need a microphone, okay? Um, just as a matter of introduction, uh, this is probably the only chance I'll get to say this, that, uh, yeah, I grew up in Zimbabwe, and there's, there's my flag right there, that first one up on this side. Although, Sean, when I was there, it was not that flag. <laughs> there, there was a civil war that happened when I was a kid in Zimbabwe, and, and near the end of our time there, there were some atrocities that happened on our mission station that kicked us off and out, and, and then my parents actually got an invitation from Dr. Charles... Anderson. So some of you that are, know about the history of Northeastern Bible College that used to be just over here, um, we left in a hurry. Um, I was 15 years old. We had a month warning that we're leaving Zimbabwe. And uh, I, I remember when my brother and I flew out of Harare, we had no clue that it was permanent. Uh, we thought we'd be coming back, but uh, I didn't get back until June of 2019, almost a year ago, 43 years later. Uh, and Zimbabwe's changed a bit. Um, one thing I'll say about Calvary, this is interesting, that uh, when I was a kid, uh, I knew the Everswicks. They were our neighbors at one time. So you guys know Norm and Thelma Everswick and Doug and, and Lynn and, and all the kids, of course. And uh, I remember them at one point we were there. They talked about their home church in Essex Falls, New Jersey. And I was, I was just a kid in the middle of Africa thinking my life was insignificant because I'm barefooted all the time, you know. And uh, I heard about Calvary when I came back to the States. My parents were actually sent. Their sending church was Brookdale Baptist in Bloomfield. But I swung through here one time. and was like, there's Calvary. That's the Everswicks church. <laughs> heard about that place. Um, interestingly, years later, my dad finally said, you can go to any church you want. And so I chose to come here. But that's where I met Allison. So Allison was actually here at Calvary before me with her mom and her sisters. And... Uh, I came, I actually met my wife right here in the parking lot, and uh, she did catch my eye that day, okay? That very first day, she did. Um, but I would say, just as, a, as an encouragement to each of you, uh, there were many, many Sundays that I was sitting right where you are here at Calvary Church listening to um, mostly probably John Aker and um, the other pastors all the way through Pastor Howard when he's here, but I grew up spiritually here at Calvary. I did. I can remember my my heart being encouraged, and my walk with the Lord growing to the point, at some point, I was asking myself, Lord, 
is there more that I need to consider in my life? Is there something that you have for Allison and I? And that actually started to happen through adventure trips where I started taking the high school kids and men from Calvary on wilderness trips. And let me tell you something. Uh, in my life, uh, the grace that God showed me is different than maybe others. I think most of my life, I felt like I was walking pretty closely with the Lord. There were some days when probably people that mentored me thought otherwise. Uh, but I would say my life was characterized, and as you sit here this morning, as we're going to talk about this, you need to think through this, that I was characterized by being satisfied with walking 95% with the Lord. I was satisfied with that because I thought, hey, if anybody's checking, if anybody wants to know, I'm doing pretty good. I'm 95% sold out to the Lord. And my confession would be that that last 5% was that I still wanted control over that part of my life that decides where I am and what I'm doing. And it was up on a wilderness trip up in Canada where some things happened and an incredible thing happened under the sky around a fire where the Lord told me, he said, you are not in charge of your life. You've got to understand this. And he said, I'm, I'm not pleased at all with this last 5% that you're holding out. I want everything from you. And that night, that's what happened. I came home from that trip and tried to explain to Allison what had happened. Let me tell you, the last 5% might as well be 100. Uh, tr- totally transformed my life. Happened here at Calvary. Um, And we felt like Calvary's been our sending church for 27 years now, 28 years. Um, It's been an incredible ride. I do apologize for not getting back here, but the one thing I'll say to the missions committee is, I can assure you, we are busy in ministry. It's been incredible. Um, See if I can get this to work here. Give me a second here. I can't see these little icons. way. So this morning, what I want to talk to you guys is about confession. Um, Confession, and I want to talk about confession uh, from the idea that I believe if we want to walk, this is amazing, as you guys sang about God's grace, if we want to walk in the center of God's grace in this fallen world where we still have trouble, I believe confession is one of the spiritual disciplines that at least in my life, so I'm telling you my testimony, That confession is something that I don't know that I've understood. And I want to say this morning that confession has often been an abused discipline throughout church history. So I want to say things cautiously this morning. But I believe for me, for me to walk daily in the center of God's grace, it's the discipline of confession uh, that has been helpful uh, to me. Um, So just as an outline, you could go to the next one. Um, We're going to talk about confession for salvation, because I don't want to get confused this morning that confession, there's one time when we confess our sins to the Lord, and it's at that moment that our entire destination changes. Of course, I'm talking about salvation. But I do believe that confession as a discipline needs to continue. So we'll consider confession as a method of transformation. And then lastly, we're going to look at confession uh, as a foundation to spiritual disciplines walking with Jesus. And at that point, we'll do have three sub-points, and we're going to talk about confession that's private, because I believe God calls us to daily confession that's just between us and Him. Secondly, we'll talk about confession with a brother and sister, which is 
somebody that you have accountability with, that you confess with, and probably there's where we'll talk more about in, in a lot of our churches. We don't talk about this anymore, and maybe you don't even have one of these friends. And lastly, we talk about confession um, that we do as a body, and that's when we come to the Lord's table, and why do we do that? Um, there's a book, so if you're keeping notes, uh, there's a book that has been instrumental in my life uh, on spiritual disciplines. The author's name is Richard Foster. Um, the title of the book is called Celebration of Discipline. And in this book, Richard Foster divides disciplines into three categories. The first one he divides them into is the inner disciplines of meditation, prayer, fasting, and study. So he, there's 12, and he divides them into three groups. Meditation, of course, is when we spend time letting God's Word simmer on our hearts and in our minds. Um, I teach this to my students all the time. The best metaphor I have for meditation is just like that, that pan that has the, the food crusted, burned onto it. Um, my wife told me one time when I was doing the dishes, just let it soak, and I was like, no, I'm a get-it-done guy, and I got out the steel wool and the Brillo, and I'm just scrubbing away, so I can get this done in two minutes. He said, if you let it sit overnight, you can just wipe it off in the morning. And I've always used that in an analogy of meditation that there's many times, guys, when God wants the Word just to sit. And I do this with my students. We do these repeated readings where I give them a passage. They have to read it 10 times. And each time they read it, they have to report what God spoke to them in that reading. And meditation is just like that. He talks about that in his book. Second one is prayer. Um, I think a lot of us use prayer as quick communication with God, a request here, a praise there, but, the meditate, but uh, as a discipline, prayer is something that God intends us to use regularly to transform our own lives if we spend time with Him. In this book, he talks about fasting. It's probably a, a spiritual discipline that not many of us have ventured into. Um, in the book, of course, there's good advice on fasting. Fasting is where you lay something aside that you normally do so that you can focus on Christ and Scripture. Typically, it's food throughout Scripture. You know, we've fasted by putting food aside for a while. Um, I have fasted for three days one time. That's the longest I've got. Sean, I don't know if you've gone longer than that. How much? Four and a half. Four and a half. Okay. And he was very hungry. <laughs> um, I do have a friend out in Wisconsin that uh, ventured into a 40-day fast. Uh, he completed it, but it actually took him a year to recover physically from a 40-day fast. And, you know, we read about Christ just going out and fasting for 40 days, and we're like, wow, that's interesting. No, it's significant things happen. The fourth one that he says in inner discipline is study. Um, study is just one of those things that we ought to be doing. And in the book, he says study is, is amazing. It's fantastic. And uh, it's where our knowledge comes from. Um, the second group he has, he calls the outer disciplines. This is the discipline of simplicity. This is where we choose to live simply, so that the world doesn't grab our soul. The discipline of solitude. I love this one on our wilderness trips. We always have the kids do solitude. That's where you just get used to being alone. Without your phone, without any distractions, you can have the Word of God with you. But what an incredible thing happens in solitude. And that's not really my subject this morning. The third one he has on here is submission. This is the discipline of submission to the authorities around you and certainly to God's God's instruction in your life, the fourth one of the outer disciplines he mentions is service. But I want to get to the next section in his book he calls corporate decisions. And number one in there, he talks about confession. He talks about worship, 
He talks about guidance. And the last one he talks about is celebration. But we're going to stop on confession this morning. Confession, uh, this could be controversial. Uh, At our church in Wisconsin, I uh, teach Sunday school for adults there, and for the last year we have been studying church history. Um, Many of you probably say, "Eh, I don't like history, it's boring, it's confusing, too many dates, too many names, but there's incredible resources out there now that are pretty quick studies of church history. And with the group that I teach, we watch a video and then we talk about it, but since Acts chapter 2, when the church was born, the church has made so many mistakes. And it's fascinating to watch the church make mistakes and how when the church makes mistakes, that doctrine shortly behind that starts to suffer. Confession or confession leading to forgiveness, and, and this is incredible, if you study church history, has been used for power and control. And as you all know, there's many churches that would tell you that your salvation is based on a daily confession. And I want to be clear, because this could be confusing, that that's not what we believe here at Calvary. It's not what I believe. There's one confession that saves you, and that's by grace and faith alone. Amen? And that's something that we can take to the bank to heaven. Um, But we are talking about confession that is different than that. My technology is not working quite right up here, so bear with me. Really good at this. Our, our text today is 1 John 1, 8 through 10, and this is if you want to turn there. So 1 John chapter 1 through 8, and we'll have other verses that we're going to look at. Um, but you know this to be true, that confession for salvation is a one-time thing. It's a positional thing, and it says this, 1 John 1, starting in verse 8, it says, if, if we say we have no sin, we've deceived ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Verse 9, if we confess our sins, and this is the key part of my message today, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make Him out to be a liar, and His word is not in us. Folks, confession for salvation is done once. No one can take the salvation away from you that comes from that moment. It's by grace alone. It's by faith alone. At the moment we believe, rooted in God's steadfast love, which David often talked about, we become children of God, covered permanently by His amazing grace. That's the confession that I did as an eight-year-old kneeling by my, my dad's bed with him. So I was led to Christ by my dad out in Zimbabwe. And what an incredible moment that was. Um, Psalm 32.5, I don't know how quickly you guys turn, you don't have to, but Psalm 32.5 uh, are just, I have two verses here that uh, David uh, in the Psalms was an incredible example of how confession is, is so important in life. Psalm 32.5 says, David says, Then I acknowledge my sin to you, and I did not cover it. I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions, transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave me. You forgave me of the guilt of my sin. Uh, and then in Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24, this is a classic 
awesome uh, psalm, Psalm 139. Right at the end of the chapter, David says these words that have always been close to my, my heart. David says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. My personal testimony with confession, and we'll talk a little bit more about this later, um, I, I've read a book by B. Dietrich Bonhoeffer called Life Together, and in the, in the fifth part of that book, he talks about confession. But honestly, confession has been, for me, a really amazing thing because I have found in my life that I like to cover my sin. I know if any of you would identify with me, and you know, so I've been a believer for many, many years. I've been in ministry for many, many years. And to this day, even this day, I would rather cover my sin than admit it. Anybody else with me on that? And I love David says here, he says, he says, search me, O God, and see if you find any wicked way in me. And you know when you ask God to search you, it's not as if he doesn't know. It's not as if your hiding is actually working, right? But isn't it funny how we believe that? We believe that we can hide our sin from God and we can't. And so what is David doing here when he says, search me? We know that confession, after you're a believer for the rest of your life, as you try to walk in grace, confession is when you lay your sins before the Lord and you tell him, I want to make sure that you know that I know my sin. And here it is. And this is what David said in these verses. So let's look a little closer at confession. Um, what we do when we confess is what we, we agree with God about our sin. So in moments of confession, when you're praying and you're saying, Lord, I want to confess, what you're actually doing is saying, Lord, help me see the sin in my life just like you see it. Help me see it that way. Um, when we confess, we, we willingly uncover and expose our hearts to the Lord. And again, it's not because he can't see, it's because he wants us to do that exercise of exposing it to him. We admit our guilt with humble, broken hearts. It's like remembering that your debt has been paid totally at a very high cost, and we want to deeply apologize, needing continued forgiveness. I don't know about you guys, but I am so thankful for God's grace because it's continued forgiveness because I need it today and I'm going to need it tomorrow. Confession doesn't change God at all. That's one thing we need to mention is that as you confess your sins to the Lord, it doesn't change Him. And so confession is a discipline that we're said to do, but it's for us. Confession is for us, and it doesn't change Him. And think of this. As we confess, we could never ask too much of our Heavenly Father. What a great thought that at times of confession, you might say, Lord, how can you forgive me? It's been so long, or it's been so hard. It's been so bad. And we know that Scripture tells us that there's nothing, there's nothing that the world could have in your life that if you don't go to Christ in, in his, his grace, that He won't say, it's not too much for me. I can forgive you. It's also great to know that His grace will never run out. It's always sufficient. And I know that I've grown, I've grown tired of going to the Lord over and over and over again. And someday I felt, someday he's going to grow tired of me coming to him, right? Isn't that what Satan wants you to believe? 
in your, in your confession, you might say, oh, Lord, here it is. It's the same thing as it was last week. It's the same thing that it was last month. Or maybe you're like me, Lord, it's the same thing from 10 minutes ago. Isn't it also great to know that no matter how we struggle with sin after salvation, that once you're a child of the King, you're always a child of the King. Uh, I'm an education person. My degrees at Northeastern were in Bible and Wheaton College. I did a master's in education. And so I love the anatomy of thinking. Uh, and, and let's break down what confession is. Um, Basically, if you go to Scripture and look at confession, uh, it starts with conviction. And we all know that in your hearts, even this morning when I'm talking to you about confession, it might just be a message that you'd walk out of here and say, eh, that was good, interesting. And I know in my own life that when it comes to confession, there's times like where the Lord is revealing things about my sin and I'm saying, you know, I actually don't feel that bad about that. Uh, I've told my wife, and maybe it's true about missionary kids. I don't know, Sean. They're, you're not a missionary kid yourself, are you? But you've got missionary kids. Missionary kids maybe grow up, and I can justify almost anything. Um, it's horrible. It's horrible. There's times when the Lord says, you should feel guilty about that. And it's like, well, I'm struggling. I don't really feel bad about that thing that I did. Conviction is something that the Holy Spirit does in our lives. And I would encourage each of you, if you're going to do disciplines, especially confession, that it starts with conviction and you actually sometimes have to say, Lord, help me see my sin the way you do. Convict me of it. I think in our churches, we don't like the bad feelings that come from sin in our lives. We like to brush it over. We like to rush in and rush out, banking on God's salvation and his grace and mercy, and we run back to what we do. And I'm not sure that's how he wants us to walk with him. Um, I believe... And this might be unpopular, but I know Sean's going to agree with this. I believe that confession should drive us to moments of remorse. Even, guys, after you're a believer, that there's times when you're confessing your sins, you take them to the cross, and, and this has been work in my life, that there's moments where I feel sorry again for my sin. Uh, it's really important. One of the things that I have done in times of confession, I've realized that I can write out confession, I can speak it out loud, but I think it's awesome that sometimes in confession, I'm not sure that the words of my heart are actually English or Spanish or, or Shona or anything. They're words directly between God and I. Isn't it awesome that he understands all those words? I think sometimes I speak in broken sentences and, and, bad, and bad grammar Fortunately, I don't misspell when I'm speaking. Yeah. The fourth point I have here under confession is this I think is so important, and I don't know if you hear this often. I believe in confession when we go to the cross with grace in our right hands. I believe we should linger for a moment there that our sin is actually realized by us. I think my habits in confession is to go to the cross and leave so quickly but it's been powerful in my life with sin to go to the cross with grace in my right hand and stay there for a few minutes, realizing that if, it, if you could imagine this, that there was a moment when your sin nailed Christ to the cross, wasn't, wasn't there? Your sin and all of it. And I think it's important that we go to the cross for moments, maybe it's every day for you, 
You know, Martin Luther did confession and prayer in the, every day before he woke up, and he says in his, his biographies that he spent a whole hour in confession before he started his day. And I'm thinking, that was a long time ago. Like, what kind of sin did he have in his life that he needed to confess for a whole hour every day? And that's why I started to realize, I think I don't understand that. And I'm starting to venture into it. Um, I mentor a lot of kids uh, at Forest Springs, and they're all college kids or beyond. And probably about two years ago, I had one young man that uh, asked for accountability. Uh, he was struggling with sin in his life, and uh, he'd been a Christian his whole life, and he was still struggling with sin that was a habit in his life. And he said, oh, Norm, could you be my accountability partner? And I hesitate when people ask me that because when somebody asks you to be their accountability partner, you better put some parameters to it. You better understand what you're agreeing to. How often do you meet? Is it an email? Do we get together and pray? What do we do? And I, I, I asked him, what do you mean, be your accountability partner? He said, well, just check on me. Just ask me questions. And I was like, okay, I can do that. And after about a year with this young man, I realized when we got to be together, and I don't know if you've been there before, but my accountability with him was not working. We were right back at the same spot every time. And I thought with him, I said, there's got to be something we're missing because it's not just having somebody ask you questions. And that's where I dug Bonhoeffer. So Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote a book called Life Together, which is an, an amazing book. It's a uh, required reading for you all. Yeah, and I expect a report by the end of February. In the last part of that book, he talks about confession. And he talks about confession as one of the most healing things that can ever happen in a believer's life. So this young man and I, I said, we're not going to do just accountability. When we get together, we're going to do confession. And that means we're both going to the foot of the cross and we're going to bear our sins to the Lord. We're going to talk about, and I said, here's the deal. And if you, do, if you do accountability with someone, it actually means that you probably have to become vulnerable as well. And when I said yes to him to do this, I realized, okay, this means that I am going to confess my sins to him as well. Ooh, this was going to be tough. But my testimony about this young man is he's gained victory over this habit in his life because he still does this practice of confession. It's amazing. Again, David said, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there is any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting, David said. When it comes to confession, here's a few ideas that I have helped me so much. When you think about the sin that you've had in your life and that God, through his grace, has erased that sin, it's more than a zero debt in the bank. So imagine you took out a loan and you owe the bank money. Let's say it was a lot of money. You know there's biblical parables about this. But the fact that you have no debt because of your sin is an incredible thing. Think of this. The debt that you owed... Uh, is something that you couldn't even pay back. Only God could have done that. And now you have no debt. And now beyond that, you're wealthy beyond measure in Christ. Ephesians 1, 7 and 8 says this, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. Folks, not only are we forgiven, but we are rich in our inheritance in Christ. Amen? 
the first step in all of this of God's grace, when we confess our sins by faith, believing in Christ, our transgressions are completely forgiven, point out that the Holy Spirit's role in this is critical. I had mentioned before that if you don't feel convicted of your sin, um, you've got work to do with the Holy Spirit. And this is a personal testimony. My dad is an incredible, incredible uh, mentor of mine. Uh, I thank the Lord. He's still alive. He's still a mentor. But I remember from the youngest age that one of the things that my dad prayed for me, and we could pray for this for each other, is that I would hear the Holy Spirit's voice in my life. As I was a little kid, I was like, what do you mean by that? And my dad always said, you can turn the Holy Spirit down, just like the knob on your stereo, or you guys use your iPhones, right? You just put it down, right? But I believe it's true. My dad had that figured out. He said, kids, you've got to turn the Holy Spirit up, right? Because I think we can. And we make that, I've made that, that practice, although there's times when I know I'd rather turn him down. Anybody been there where you'd rather turn the Holy Spirit down? Like, eh. You know, um, turn the Holy Spirit up. I have a friend named Tim Kite. I get his devotionals. He, uh, he puts them online. And I want you just to think about this. He says, Christ's death and resurrection not only saves people from something, but it also restores people to something. The prepositions matter. In Christ, God redeems us from sin. He restores us to his image and he calls us to be agents of redemption and transformation in the world around us. Christ's redemptive work is neither the end nor the goal of Christian life. Rather, redemption is the beginning of our participation with God in the work of transformation in the world around us. I love this idea, guys, that confessing our sins puts us in the middle of God's grace as we walk with him, but it doesn't end there. The reason God wants us to walk with him is so that the grace that in, is in us starts to flow into the people around us. Amen? C.S. Lewis says this in his book, Miracles, and I, I love this thought because great, God's grace has definitely done this for me. He says, if we think God came down from heaven to restore a status quo, we're mistaken. He's talking about Adam and Eve sinned, and sin happened. And he said, if you think God came down just to restore a status quo, you're mistaken. The whole miracle of the incarnation and subsequent death and bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ doesn't simply reboot the story before Adam and Eve sinned. God is not merely mending through Jesus' death on the cross. He's not simply restoring a status quo. Lewis goes on to say, Redeemed humanity, listen to this, redeemed humanity is to be something more glorious than the unfallen humanity would have been, more glorious than an unfallen race would be. I followed C.S. Lewis's thoughts through this, and I thought, guys, we, we are pure and debt-free because of Christ on the cross. And I know angels would love to look into this because, and I've always thought angels fear God and they've never sinned, they still fear God, but they love to look into the fact that when we get to heaven, the angels will look at us as, look at us as like, you guys are amazing. You're objects of God's grace, right? You didn't just fall and then get back to here. So Adam and Eve were, were created and they fell and the Lord didn't say, well, I'm just getting you back here because the, the price that it took for Christ to die on the cross took us way above where we would have been. 
I love C.S. Lewis's idea. And let me tell you the reason why. The reason why I love this idea is that it helps me in a time of confession to realize that there's such an incredible thing that happened at the cross. And I think we could live our lives day after day after day being thankful for God's grace, but not really understanding what happened there. Confession takes you there. After we become children of God, we have to learn how to be part of the family. Romans 12, verses 1 and 2 says this, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as living sacrifices. And recently, I've been trying to figure out what that is, a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that by testing you'll be able to discern what is the will of God, what is his good and acceptable and perfect. Uh, Scripture clearly tells us that this life before we're with the Lord should be a continuous process of renewing our minds. Amen? Amen? And how do we do that? I'm convicted that I could study till the sun goes down every day, fill my head with knowledge, understand who Jesus is, and try to walk a nice, clean life but the real work for me is when I go to the cross and confess my sin and understand how I've transgressed. So this, this isn't really just a, a hard story. Um, as you all know, I'd, I'd love it that you walk away encouraged today because when we go to the cross in confession and you walk away with grace in your right hand again in a new and a fresh way, what a way to live life, Right? Isn't it interesting that when people come to Christ, they're, they're great evangelists for about a month or a year? It's true. It's, it's true about me. And you run into someone who's this avid, energetic evangelist, and you're like, wow, you can, tell, you can tell they're right on top of what Christ just did in their life. It shouldn't be that a year later that you cool down, right? It shouldn't be 20 years later that you've cooled down about what Jesus has done for you. And I can honestly tell you, that the discipline of confession will keep you right on the edge of being an evangelist because you will always remember what Jesus has done for you. I've spent a lot of time in a canoe, okay? Maybe more than I'd like to confess. I do believe the backseat of a canoe is an incredible pulpit, though. It's a place to preach the gospel, if it's not too windy. But the canoe is an incredible analogy, so some of you maybe have been in a canoe but the interesting thing about a canoe is that the moment you stop paddling, it'll veer off course. So I love that I can paddle down the lake and I can say, I got that tree on the other side of the lake. I'm gonna, this is where we're headed to that spot over there. And you pick it out and you start paddling. And you might start talking. And I've noticed like as soon as you stop paddling, the canoe, off it goes. To the right or to the left. And so you have to do a little more work to get it on course again. And then that's on a day that there isn't any wind. So on um, crossing a lake, sometimes the wind is coming this way, it's coming that way, sometimes it's pushing you, and you're happy about that. Although I would say all the years of paddling canoe, the wind's usually in my face. It just seems that way. In the river, there's obstacles too. I love the analogy. I take kids down the river and adults, and there's rocks in the river, there's trees, the current switching back and forth to the right and to the left. And that canoe totally needs you to be in control and steer it. 
uh, an incredible analogy. I have used this analogy in my life all the time because I know I am just like that canoe that as soon as I stop paddling, I am going to veer to the right or to the left, like almost instantly. And I love this parable that in order to walk with God, it takes constant correction. Does it not? Constant correction. I don't know if it does for you, but it does for me, okay? I have to do a lot of correcting all the time. But here's the cool thing about the analogy of the canoe. If you stay on top of it, it doesn't take that much in the way that I, if I watch somebody who's canoeing and they're not paying attention, next thing you know, they're actually going 90 degrees off of the direction. And if you've got a headwind, it's going to take a lot of work to get that canoe back on course. And I'll tell them, wait, just don't let it go that far. As soon as you feel that you're starting to swerve to the right or to the left, introduce correction in your life. And it's like, yeah, you can learn that from a stupid canoe. Awesome. No, they're not stupid. I'm sorry. I just want to talk quickly about the three kinds of confession, and then we'll be done. The first one, and I hope that you're taking notes because this is changing my life. Number one is private confession. This is the time where it's just you and the Lord. Remember Jesus said to go in your closet to pray, right? These are moments where you go before your Savior, looking at the cross and say, Lord, reveal to me the sins that are in my life and forgive me. Take a moment and go to the cross and I'm begging that you find a moment of remorse where you feel like I've grieved you again. Psalm 139 again says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there's any, and the word there is grievous. See if there's any grievous thing in me and lead me in the way of, un, of everlasting. That word grievous to me actually has been helpful because when I go to the Lord and, and, and I'm at the cross in my heart, I want to take a moment and feel grievous about my sin. It actually means a moment of sorrow a moment of burdensome pain. I know this sounds pretty bad, doesn't it? Does it sound bad? Does it sound hard? But I can tell you, when I come back out of the cross, when I come back out, and I know that my, I've gone to the Lord, and I said, these are the things that I'm struggling with. And he says, yeah, they're bad. They nailed me to the cross. And I'm like, I'm sorry, again, all over. And then when I stand up with grace in my right hand, I tell you, I'm so much stronger every time I do that. But if I rush in and say, hey, thank you for your grace, I'm busy. We'll do it again next week or tomorrow. It doesn't transform my life. The second point, and this one's going to be hard for you guys because this is hard for me. In his book, Bonhoeffer talks a lot, of, a lot about having a brother or a sister that you confess with regularly. And I don't know how the history of the spiritual life here at Calvary's changed in the last 25 years I've not been here. But I know in my life that finding someone to confess with, because I think it's a powerful thing to do, where you find a friend and you kind of make an agreement, say, hey, would you be a confession partner with me? Which means they have to agree. One of the things I'll say about finding someone to confess with, it's usually good to get a pastor involved with that and just say, hey, I'm choosing this person. You set up those parameters, and it's really hard for us because we don't do this. How do you find someone that you're going to say, can I spend an hour with you, and I'm going to confess to you what I'm struggling with? And they'll say, yeah, I'm going to do the same with you. Um, 
Bonhoeffer says in his book, he says, isn't it interesting? He says this. He says, uh, the marks that we wear before men, meaning what we, how we hide our sin, do us no good before God. He who is alone in his sin is utterly alone. Bonhoeffer saying, you need to have a brother or a sister that walks with you. Because again, he says, he who is alone in his sin is utterly alone. He asks this question. He says, why would you ever find it harder to confess to a brother than to confess to God Almighty? I remember when I read that, I was like, man, it's so hard to find a friend to confess to, but I can rush in and out of God's presence and get forgiveness. And I thought to myself, there's something wrong. If, if we make confession the end, though, and we make it a legalistic thing, we're going to run into trouble. If we make confession a pious routine, you're going to run into trouble. If you're a person that has too many confession partners, it could get too heavy for you. You've got to be careful of that. If confession ever becomes required to, to obtain salvation, like it has throughout church history, then there's no end to the trouble and confusion that can happen from it. So confession needs to be done properly. It needs to be done carefully. But I believe it needs to be a part of our lives. Lastly, confession is awesome when we do it together. Uh, I don't know if Calvary does it once a month. Sean, do you do the Lord's table? Um, as a kid, I can remember my dad telling me, because we did communion, I was like, hey, Dad, when can I take communion? You know, and he was like, well... I don't know if he'd thought about his answer. He's like, well, when you can explain to me why you would do it, then you can do it. And so, because I remember, he's like, I was just a little kid. It's like, I want the punch, you know, the juice and the cracker. That, that's fun in the middle of service because I'm a little hungry, you know. Later in my life, coming to the Lord's table, uh, there was a period of time where it was more difficult for me. Um, I think at that time in my life, coming to the Lord's table, I felt unworthy to be there. You know, and it's said that you know, if, you do, if you have unconfessed sin in your life, that maybe you ought not to take, take the Lord's communion. And there was a while when I was like, oh man, I come to the Lord's like, oh, it's that, it's that Sunday, it caught me off guard this week. You know, and so you listen to the message, and maybe at our church we do it sometimes before the service, sometimes after, but I've been caught off guard. It's like, oh, it's communion this week. Uh, am I anywhere near ready for that? And sometimes I was like, ah, Lord, I know through your grace that I can take communion and I faithfully do it, but sometimes I struggle. Sometimes I struggle. But now I've gotten better. This is such a great thing. Through, through the practice of confession, uh, like that canoe, I'm doing it much more frequently. When I come to the Lord's table, it's almost a regular like, thing that I do. It's like I am going to confess my sins all over again. Together we do it. And, and that's what the Lord's Supper is about. The point, one of the points there is the frequency of it. You know, God doesn't tell, it, tell us that you need to do it every week, every day. Most churches do it once a month, right, Sean? Yeah, depends on the church. Um, but it needs to be something that's regular in your life, and that's the beauty of confession, that it's regularly getting you on track. Let's just close our eyes and pray. I'm, I'm done with... with the message, but I do want to ask the Lord's blessing on you guys and on myself. Father, we pause this morning. Lord, I don't, I don't claim to be a great speaker at all, but I know you've done great things in my life.
things that are difficult to, to understand, things that are, are difficult even to describe. Lord, I pray, as we know, that any word that comes from up here on the, um, at the pulpit here at Calvary, Lord, we pray this morning that the words that I have spoken, that you would take them with the power of the Holy Spirit, that you magnify them way beyond anything that I could do. Lord, I, I thank you that grace has been a repeated theme in, in the sanctuary this morning. Lord, I often imagine what would it be like to know what happened at the cross, that you were dying for our sins. And can you imagine if you'd been a person at the cross on that day, knowing that he has to die? I almost feel like I couldn't stay there. I'd have to run knowing that you're dying for my sin, that the nails that are going through your hands and through your feet and the death that you died is for me. Sometimes it's overwhelming. Lord, we thank you that you did. We thank you that your grace isn't overwhelming, but it forgives us of our sin once for all. We know as we walk in this world, as our bodies fail, as we struggle with sin desperately every day, that you're waiting patiently for us to come and to experience your grace anew every time we confess our sins. Lord, thank you for that. And thank you, Lord, that it helps us walk straight, helps us be people that are humble, as we know regularly that our sin is a transgression on you. So Lord, I pray for Calvary. I pray for everyone here this morning. I pray that this message is something that they'll take with them. The discipline of uh, confession would be something at least to think about and to put it into our practice. Pray these things this morning in Jesus' name. Amen.